now we come to the last books. These are the later ones written. The Thinking John's writing late 80s, 90s. Uh, he's writing three letters. The first one is to Ephesus. The other two are probably to individuals at Ephesus or perhaps the church. We'll talk about that. So again, another snapshot of Ephesus. And then a little bit later than that, this vision he has on Patmos that we get to call Revelation that got put as our last book in the Bible. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if somebody would have arranged these letters kind of this way, early, mid, late letters? They didn't. How they did it was Paul wrote the most, so he put his letters in there. His longer ones first, moving to his short. Romans the longest, Corinthians, working all the way down to Philemon, which is one. And then they started with the general, the non-Pauline, as they say. And Pauline used to confuse him. When I went to school, I got to tell you, when I went to Bible school the first time, I saw a syllabus that talked about the Pauline epistles. My first thought was, who is Pauline and what did she write? I hadn't a clue. And it took a few days for me to realize, oh, they're talking about Paul. And this is just cute academic language. And then there were the Petrine letters. And I was smarter by then, so I knew who Petrine was. But they actually then just took the generals and did the same thing. Hebrews is the longest, James the next, Peter the next, and Jude. And then they put John's next to Revelation. So they had nothing to do with any kind of helping us with the story. That's why I'm putting them this way. Encourage you to, you don't have to read them in this order. But when you read them, when you open Ephesians or you open John, you go, okay, this was late in the development of the church. This is late. This is an older man writing back to a, a familiar congregation that we've heard a lot about. And we'll talk about that in a moment. The author is John. It's not been disputed at all that this is John, the, the one that, that was the disciple of Jesus and close to him. His vocabulary in all of his letters and his gospel is nearly identical. Words come up, common words of love and logos and light and darkness. And the very similar themes, very similar theology. So even John, 1 John 1 and John chapter 1 start very similar. This high theology of the word who came among us and we beheld his glory and our hands handled and touched. And It's written to Gentile believers with whom John personally connected. It probably folks around Ephesus. But particularly Revelation was intended for a wider distribution. The theme that you may know, that, that's repeat of that you might know. John's wanting his people to have an assurance that they are in fact loved by God and living in that love. The most transformative thing in John's life, and I love this phrase from 1 John 4, and this is from the New International, we have come to know and to rely on the love God has for us. And I... That's the description of an old man who's laying on Jesus' chest in the upper room, wanting to live in that love, who now has learned to come and know and rely. Doesn't wake up in the morning going, gosh, I'm wondering if God loves me today. Have learned to rely on it. Man, that phrase more than any other in John's writing makes me hungry. There are places in my life where I think I fully rely on God's love, and they're just wonderful places to live. And there are places in my life where I know I don't yet. I know the anxiety or, you know, tension or whatever. I just, I'm not relying there. I want to, mentally committed to it, want to, but have not been yet one into that space. And so it's part of my continued growing, saying, Jesus, win me into that space, but that you might know. He wasn't wanting people. You are in the light. And it begins with that whole, what we've heard and tasted and seen. They said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. And the problem with 1 John is it's one of the one the religionists can jump on and distort very quickly. If we, you know, walk in the light as he is in the light, is this you've got to walk, you know, in perfection. And yet John's very next phrase is, and if we say we haven't sinned, we lie and we make God a liar. Walking in the light is not being sinless. Walking in the light is walking in the open. Not having to hide things from God. Not having to hide things from each other. I bring all that I am into the light. My sin included. My fears included. My doubts included. Why? Because the light is safe now. 
I'm safe in the light. I don't have to pretend anymore. That's what he means. And then there's this whole drawing us in. You know, he that practices righteous is righteous. He that practices lawless is lawless. And man, I've heard that thundered away with people. If you're doing lawless stuff, it's because you're an unbeliever and you don't really love God. They use this book for the exact opposite of what John wanted it to be. I want you to come out of this knowing that you're loved. And when you grow in the reality of that love, you'll love him. You'll love your brothers and sisters. You'll demonstrate his life in the world in reality. And what he's saying is, don't, but don't be deceived into this thing. If you're practicing righteousness, then you're righteous. Again, if we put perfection to that, we're going to really misunderstand it. If we put practicing the piano to that, if the only day you're going to play a piano is if you can sit down and play Beethoven's Ninth Symphony flawlessly, you will never play the piano. If you're going to practice the piano, you're going to start playing scales and you're going to make lots of mistakes and you're going to play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to learn how to play it and you're going to move on to bigger and bigger things. I think that's our journey. John's describing that journey. It's not a standard of practice that you must achieve today. It's as you're living love, practice righteousness. And if you're practicing it, doesn't mean you're getting it right all the time. You're just practicing it. Then you're righteous. And if you're practicing lawlessness, if it's really about I'm trying to get better at my sin, then realize that's the road you're on. Doesn't mean you're unloved. Doesn't even mean you're unsaved. It just means you're on that road. Don't be there because your love, behold, this is John 3, behold what manner of love the Father's bestowed upon us that we'd be called children of God. And that's what we are. And he defines first love. First love isn't how much you love God. First love is that he loved you and gave his son to be the propitiation. Lots of great theology in 1 John. If you don't give in to the whole religious overlay of that book and you read it just the way John wrote it, you're going to find it wonderfully reassuring. It's going to make you hungry to know God's love even more and live in that reality even greater. 2 John, okay, these are very short books. This is written to the chosen lady and her children, though we don't know who she is. We don't even know if that's a euphemism for the church, the body of Christ, the bride. And just so it may even be that. We're not sure who that is. Again, it's about truth. It's inviting all these later epistles are, it's easy to get off the mark. It's easy to give ourselves to things that don't turn out to be true in the end, whether it's licentiousness on the one side or legalism on the other. And always the legalists take this on as their kind of key books. Timothy, Peter, these books, because they see it as embellishing the standard of righteousness we all must live to. But they're actually talking the opposite of that. They're coming at truth from a grace-love construct that isn't about performance, but it is about not losing your passion for truth not wanting to settle for things, but this lifetime journey of continuing to want to know, to want to even search the scriptures to see what things are true. I want to know what's true about God. I want to know what's true about the way he works and the way he calls me and invites me to work. Again, false teachers were coming in, distorting the gospel, and he's saying, don't receive them. His basic advice here is, you are part of what you support. So these people that are coming and teaching false stuff and you think you should be generous and give them hospitality, you're actually supporting the very error they're doing. Support what you support. Don't support what you don't support. And don't feel like you're being ungenerous in that reality. Third John, more specifically to a man named Gaius, and this is a problem with a man named Diotrephes who's moved into the church. I think we wrote Demetrius there, which is wrong. It's Diotrephes, actually. He's gotten into the church now. He's decided who's in, who's out, and he's kind of become the, well, senior pastor, I guess. And John says, have nothing to do with him, and I'll take care of him when I get there. And here's, here's one of those power grab moments. 
that John says, no, can't have it, don't want it. So now we've had, and we will have in Revelation, we'll get to that in just a moment, seven snapshots of Ephesus. Paul planting it, visiting the elders later, writing a letter to them, writing a letter to Timothy about them, and then 2 Timothy as well. And then Paul, Peter's letter, 1 and 2 Peter, both probably to the same crowd. John's letters 1, 2, and 3, all to the same. And Ephesus is a specific letter for them in Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus. Seven snapshots of the same group of people. There's a story here. There's a story here that undermines the whole idea that there's a principle that we can universally apply to every people at every time. There's times when we need to appoint elders. And then at the end, there's a time to point out that the elders have become the problem. So then he goes back to what is often in these, all of these letters. Almost everyone doesn't say your source of truth is found in finding the right leader. You have an anointing from the Holy One to know truth and error. Hebrews, quoting Jeremiah, everyone shall know me from the least to the greatest of it. No one will have to run to his neighbor saying, know the Lord. You will all know me. First John saying that there's many antichrists in the world. And by antichrist, he's not talking about the God, the, the evil incarnate figure of Revelation. He'll talk about that shortly. Antichrist in First John is anyone who's willing to be a substitute for Christ in your life. That can be a mentor, a leader, a quote-unquote spiritual father, a pastor, a book author, anyone that's willing to say, look, follow me instead of following Jesus. I will tell you what Jesus wants to, you to do. That's that antichrist spirit that John says is already loose in the world. Why? Because God wants to know you. You're safer learning to follow Jesus than you are following any other human being on the planet. And we, we lose confidence in that. And because we do, we feel like, well, who am I? I'm into Bible study. I'm into you know, Bible school. I, I don't speak the Greek. I, how, how is God? Because sometimes you hear something and you just know in your gut something's wrong with that. There's a restlessness there. Or you know the first time you've heard something, wow, that's true. I know it. You don't know how it's true. You can't go to the scriptures and say, well, here it is. I know it's true. But your heart resonates with it. And that's what John, writer of Hebrews, Paul, Jeremiah, others wanted us to know. God's done it that way. You don't need someone to follow. Doesn't mean other people can't be valuable resources and teachers and help us to understand stuff. But when you give away the truth meter of your life to another person, you've lost your conscience and you've lost the way God works and you're just set up for deception. Trust what you feel. Even when Paul writes to the Corinthians about, here's one of the, the member of the council at Jerusalem says, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Well, already in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul turns that around and says, you know what? We know idols are nothing. I meat offered to them is nothing. So you're free to eat. I mean, one of the th big threes from the council at Jerusalem, Paul overrides later. Part again, this revelational flow, it changes. And Paul says, no, we're free to eat. But if you're not free to eat, if somehow you think it's a problem to eat meat that's been offered to idols, then don't you eat. And what's more, because I love you and I'm with you, I'm not going to eat either. I'm going to abstain from meat when I'm with you because I know it's a deal for you. It's not a deal for me. So as soon as I go on to the next village, I'm going to stay with a meat eater and I'm going to eat meat. Now, the problem was in, in Jerusalem, meat offered to idols was fairly rare. It was easy to stay away from meat offered to idols and still have meat. In Ephesus, everything was slaughtered in a temple. It was temple central, man. And if you weren't, you weren't going to have meat if you offered it. And so their growing understanding of how we live out this gospel, it's growing among the early believers to now say, you know, it's okay to eat. We know idols are nothing. Meat offered to them is nothing. So you're free to eat. But then it comes back to this conscience thing again. 
And this is what I love about the early church apostles. They never said, you know what? If you disagree with me, you're wrong. You need to trust me. They didn't go there. If it's not, if you don't see it, you live in the reality of your conscience because that's how God will change and transform you. Unfortunately, as a pastor, and I don't think I did this willingly or knowingly, but when I would share stuff and people would disagree with me or they were going to make a decision in their life that I thought might be a bad one and I might encourage them to a different direction, and I would fairly strongly say, well, you know what? You're kind of young in the faith and you may not really know for sure. And, you know, I've been around a while and I was actually teaching people not to trust Jesus who wanted to guide them. I know it. And now how do we learn to follow him? Hebrews says our senses are trained to discern good and evil through practice. Yeah, you get to make some wrong decisions. That's how you learn to follow. Do some things I thought was Jesus. I got in the middle of it and realized, son of a gun, this isn't Jesus. This is Wayne. And I step back and I learn from that. God wants us all on that journey. That's what makes discipleship, reading scripture, that's what makes it all engaging. Why? I'm the guy in the pilot seat of my life. I don't get to give that to you. I, there's not a United Airlines that I get to crawl on. I think that's what we've done oftentimes with authors or pastors or others. Look, I don't really know. It's not my deal. I'll just crawl on your plane. You fly. Jesus wants you to fly your plane. And he wants to teach you how to live in that truth and use your conscience to move you to that reality. He did it with prostitutes, bad fishermen, tax collectors. You don't have to be a high academic person. You just don't have to be any of that. You just got to be someone that says, Jesus, I want to listen to you. So what's true, show me. What's false, show me. And you're not going to do that on the oppressiveness of a performance-based reality. You will do it in the place of grace and freedom to live in that life. Finally, quickly, Revelation. I, I included some stuff here for you because I knew you either don't talk about Revelation a lot or you spend hours talking about it because it is one of my favorite books. Too. And I've said that about a lot of them because they just that frankly are. Revelation, if, you're gonna, if this is how you figure out the end of the age, it's a frustrating book and you get to the end of it going, I don't have a clue. And you've read enough books to know no one else has a clue either because everybody who thinks they have a clue doesn't agree with other people who think they have a clue. Prophecy is written, Jesus said in John 17, so that when these things come to pass, you'll believe. They're not written in advance so that we'll configure it all out. It's just it'll unfold. But what is in Revelation, not only the letters to the churches about where they're getting lost, and there's wonderful letters about where people are getting lost. Ephesus is getting lost with its first love. It's lost its first love. They've gotten so good at Ephesus. Remember they had the sound doctrine problems? Then they had the, so they put in elders, and then we got bad elders, so now you've got to follow Jesus. And they got so good at doing that, that they could, they know truth and error, putting out false prophets like crazy, but it lost their first love. So now it was just a prison. We're right. We've got the right stuff, and there's no love going on. And Paul says, you've left, John writes, you've left your first love. Return to me. And what does he mean by first love? We've heard that taught in seminars all over the world, I, you know, retreats and everything. Remember how you loved Jesus the first day you got saved and how full and free and wonderful that is? You need to conjure that back up again. That's not what it means. It's not about you. First love, John's already defined. First love is that he loved you. When I lose sight of how much God loves me, I become unloving in the world I live in. When truth becomes more important than love, then something becomes very distorted about truth. Love and truth go hand in hand. And first love is remembering, my goodness, he loves me in my brokenness. He loves me in my failures. He loves me in my ignorances. He loves me in my doubts. When you lose sight of that love, you become a danger to the family. And when truth becomes, as, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, knowledge builds up, or knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If it's just love, it's just my truth against your truth, we're going to kill each other. If our truth is seasoned with love, and comes in great affection, 
then that life continues to happen. The theme of it is the encouragement in the last days. There's lots of ways to interpret Revelation. Some people believe it's all been fulfilled back in 68 AD. That it was all about the foretelling of the fall of Jerusalem and those things have all happened. And so that's fulfilled and we don't know what's coming. Most people see that as, yeah, it has some application in that day. There's lots of what's being said that applies to the Roman Empire. It applies to some of what those believers were facing. But there's prophecies in there that weren't fulfilled in that day, and they're yet coming. This is apocalyptic language, man. This is visions that, Paul, Pete, that John's writing about. He doesn't even know what all those things mean. He's, I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this. And when you read that, you're going, wow, that's a lot of wild stuff. And honestly, I don't think it gives us the diagram to put it together. What it does do, and I gave you a list in your notes of all the admonishments and encouragements that come to our lives from reading this book. There's lots that do. There's stuff about worship, stuff about God's protection in the midst of trouble. The fact that you can totally trust God. The, the prayers of the martyrs ahead of us who are praying for God to bring his judgment to the end of the age. And that's not, oh yeah, God, go get him. It's God make right what is so distorted and broken and the cataclysmic events that are going to unfold at the end of this age. Why? Because God's wrath, the love of God that engaged Jesus at the cross and transforms us through him, that's still got to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. There's a fire coming. There's a great destruction coming. Those of us who are in Christ won't taste any of that. We've already been through that because he went through it for us on the cross. And that's our wormhole into eternal life. The rest of the world, I mean, there's cataclysmic things coming. I, do I feel like I have those all figured out? I don't. But that doesn't keep me from loving Revelation. And then the last book of Revelation, interestingly, the last two chapters of Revelation. Again, this is part of that internal consistency. The last two chapters of Revelation reflect so well the first two chapters of Genesis. The tree of life being there, it began in a garden, ends in a garden. Here's where it was broken. Here's where it's restored. I mean, you look at stuff like that. How can the last book written reflect so well, not seemingly with the intent of, I'm going to tie it together here. With that. That's what I mean by inspired by God. I mean, God inspired people. He gave them stuff to write. And he, he watched over that writing to make sure that the important stuff he needed to have said to the world, things we could stake our sense of truth on, would be revealed here. And Revelation culminates that. And there's a lot you don't understand from Revelation. There's a lot you don't understand from Colossians. You read stuff and you say, I don't know what that means. What do you understand? What, what is God speaking to you that's alive in that passage? Hold the things you don't understand for conversations with other people and seeing what else God might show you and holding it before God and talking about it with Him. And then that's how this story... Now, if you see that story of the whole New Testament then it's not just, here's a bunch of rules to follow. Here's a story of people learning to live in the love of the Father. And with that, to live in truth. By that, be transformed. And find a way to love the world in the same way they've been loved by the Father. That creates a powerful life among the church that is more relational than it is institutional. It differs from city to city and village to village. It's not like we have to all follow a plan or a market. It's people who are learning to live love, who learn to love each other and live transformed. 